Um, it seems like forever. It's, not, it's only been a few weeks, but it seems to me like forever because it's, it's so much more difficult. And I realized here's one reason. Uh, one reason why the other is more difficult for me while teaching topically is more difficult. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with teaching topically. Um, Jesus taught topically. Okay, so it's not like that would be, somehow that's bad. Teaching, there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like when I teach topic, when I'm teaching on a topic, it's a little bit more of the, hey, the guy on stage has a word to bring. And, and, and there's, again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That is part of my job. But, but it, I, the reason I like teaching straight through a passage, what is shorthanded as teaching exegetically, straight through it, is, is that then I feel much more like we're studying it together. Um, and so that we're looking at it together, and it's not, I have a word for you, it's that God has a word for us. It just feels more that way to me, and, and I really enjoy that. I like getting to share my excitement over what I'm learning and what I'm studying, and the new things and the controversies and the passages, and uh, that to me is, is super fun, and I love getting to do that with you guys. And I know I'm the one who does all the talking because I'm on the mic for the most part, but to me it still feels very much so like, we're, we're unpacking these things together. I love the look in your eyes or your responses on some of you when I'm up here talking and I share something and you get this like, I'd never thought about that before. Or, oh my gosh, that's, that, is, that is there. Or I need to look that up or, or whatever. I want to encourage you. The goal is that Sunday morning is a time that inspires and encourages you to then want to go study on your own. Um, to dig in further, to dig in more deeply, to see if, if what I'm saying, how that plays out in your life. So I love this. So we're about to jump into it. The people of Israel, to catch you up, the people of Israel lived as nomads in the desert for about 40 years after leaving Egypt and his slavery in Egypt. Bless you. And it uh, uh, is, <laughs> um, sweetie, that's so, that's so cute. Your sneezes are so cute. All right. So, so the, um, uh, these massive, they, they traveled around for about 40 years in these massive tent cities as nomads. And so they moved around through the deserts down there in the most southernmost parts of Israel and, 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 uh, and Egypt. And, and so moving around in these areas with cooking fires um, in each front of each of their tents, drifting up in the smoke, um, spreading into the sky, these cities spreading out um, all in the desert around a central point. And at the central point was a larger tent. This larger tent, um, I'm going to reference the map in just a second, but this larger tent um, would have had an even larger fire source. So it would have really looked like there's, a, there's just another tent here and another home here and another abiding here. And that's, the, that's what's going on, this tabernacle that's this, in this tent in the middle. And, and so that was the picture, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of, of families um, together around this source. And every time God indicated it was time to move, um, the people of the, would have to pack up the tabernacle, the Levites would have to pack up the tabernacle every time. Whenever he said it was time to move. Now moving it was an incredibly scary proposition. So whatever you have in mind, like harken back to your favorite bomb disposal scene in a movie. Okay? So whatever it is that you picture, a James Bond or a Mission Impossible, them trying to pull the core out of a nuclear weapon and they can't let it touch, or maybe like the one that came to my mind was uh, 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 an old Western where they're trying to get rid of some dynamite and the dynamite has already started sweating nitroglycerin, and which I don't know exactly what that means, but the cowboys are certainly terrified of it. Like they're so scared to even, draw, they don't want to move it or dump it, drop it or any of that. So whatever your best picture of a bomb disposal and anything, the tiniest thing goes wrong and, and kind of we're all toast, that's what they experienced every time. They had to unpack the, the, pack up the implements of the tabernacle, 
correctly store them, correctly transport them, and then when God said it was time to stop and set up camp again, to correctly unpack it all and reset it up. It's, it's natural for us. We forget it is so natural because as Christians, we so rightly experience the grace of God and rightly experience the love and rightly experience His mercy that sometimes if we're not careful, we forget that this is a holy and righteous God and that to offend His holiness is not acceptable. So here's what's wild. When we think about this, it reminds me, um, Paul and I were involved in a discipleship program years ago at Pine Cove. And, and so here you have this, this program. These boys come in one day, and, and uh, I'm teaching the Bible study, and, uh, and Paul's one of their direct shepherds. Like, he's essentially living life with them for five weeks. And, and so they come in, and they, did a, they just come in unprepared. They do a terrible job. And so the, part of the problem, part of that issue is we create a, a discipline, a consequence when that happens. But what, what, what stood out to the boys so much, I think so much, was the fact that, for example, in that situation, they had to run up a... They had to run up the hill. There's a hill that no one likes to even walk up, much less run up out there. And so they're going to have to run this hill. And Paul and the other shepherd, they run the hill first, and then they run it with the boys. So the, the, the consequence, the discipline was not on them. They hadn't done anything wrong. But they ran the discipline with the kids who were in this program who had done something wrong. Why don't you stop and consider this for a second? God's consequence on the people for their faithlessness was to wander in the desert for 40 years. That's their discipline. And yet God then wanders the desert for 40 years with them. He didn't have to do that. He didn't need to do that. He hadn't failed them. He hadn't blown it. But he, knowing they had a consequence that they then have to live out, this God says, okay, I'm the one who created this consequence. I dictated this. It is a just consequence for your faithlessness. Now I'm going to come experience that just consequence with you. I'm going to come abide with you in the midst of this and live with you in the midst of this. And I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. That's how this is going to work for the next 40 years. And by the way, make sure and do, I've set up a way for you to do this. And if you do it right, it's safe for me to live in your midst. If you disobey me, if you ignore me, if you don't do it this way, it's not safe for me to be in your midst. It's going to cost you. And this becomes the pattern, one of the patterns that we see. But whenever you picture it, imagine you do something wrong with this Ark of the Covenant and people may die. This is a holy and righteous and absolutely powerful God. So then, then, God, the, then Joshua leads them into the land and God had promised Abraham this land about 500 years, almost five centuries before God had promised them this land. And so then they, they're now in there, they go into wars, and they watch as God gives them impossible victories when they do it His way, and they watch themselves face impossible defeats when they don't. Again, this is the message. So now we look at the map. What happens is as, they, as they're traveling through the promised land and taking the different countries, and this, this shows the map of their victories as they come in, the different campaigns, and, and they, they defeat the land, and at some point they say, okay, so the first, the ark and everything probably was brought to Gilgal, right there, just across the, uh, the Jordan River. If you know Israel at all, so the Dead Sea down here, the Sea of Galilee is right up here, and uh, Jerusalem, is um, Jerusalem is going to be over in this area, and they go, they're going all the way, the, the, the people of Israel come in across right in the middle, cut it in half, and begin conquering this area and they, they end up conquering that area. And then they, 
Then they spread out. Then it's like every tribe gets their own property, and you need to go drive the people out of your area. Um, we'll later get into maybe some of the consequences and decisions about that that's uncomfortable for us, understandably. But, but here's what happens. As they divide out, at some point, Shiloh is taken, or Shiloh is taken. And at that point, the ark and everything is moved probably from here up to there, and that's where the tabernacle is put, and that's where it stays. So the tabernacle is going to be up here for several hundred years, 300 plus years. Um, and that's where the tabernacle is going to be, right up there in Shiloh. So it's going to, you'll see the significance in a second. The nation is divided, they do that. So you remember how one of the themes in the book of John, somebody told me they were going back to this, the book of John uh, sermons, which is great, and, uh, and that's a, that's, it seems like a million years ago when we did that, but one of the themes was the least likely people are the only ones who seem to know what's going on. The blind people are the only people that see. The lost people are the only people that know the way. You see that pattern all throughout the book of John, and we're going to see that again, a similar pattern in the Samuels. One of the questions is, as we go into the Samuels, is are we humble enough to hear what God has for us? Because only humble people are able to hear the story. Only humble people are able to hear what God has for them. Only humble people are able to catch the melodies that God is going to put in this. I believe that in the Samuels, God is going to give us the opportunity uh, to learn about Him and ourselves and our relationships in this book. He's going to give us this opportunity. So I want us to take a minute to confess our own pride and, and instead ask God to give us, to give us the strength and the humility to even embrace humility um, so that as we're reading through this and as we study through this together, we'll, have, uh, we'll be able to gain the insights he has for us. So Father, thank you for the power of your word, for what has been revealed through your Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you that you have um, that you blessed us with your word and the message there. And God, I pray that our own pride now would be set aside, that we'd be humble enough to listen to your word for us, under the assumption that coming into this, you have something for us that we need. God, the things that, the ways that we've chosen to live our lives, the ways that make good sense to us, sometimes they are not wise and they're just flat foolishness, and we need you to correct our thinking and correct the way we commit these things. And Lord, I, I pray that even as we face these moments, that we're able to accept you as God and the truth that we aren't, and therefore are able to unpack this and learn from it and listen in new ways. I thank you, Father, for the good gifts of your word, and I pray we're prepared to hear them in your Son's name through the power of your Spirit. Amen. Now, I don't normally do this, but we're about to read all, uh, essentially, we're one th verses 1 through 20 here, all of chapter 1. And so, um, since we're doing this whole section, get us started, I think it would be a good idea to do what Paul has us do and everybody stand as we read this section. It's going to take a second for me to read it, but you can read along or it'll be on the screen. Um, and I'm going to read this section, and I want you to be listening. Remember, listen, observe, see what you see, hear what you hear. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had no children, but, but Hannah had, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. 
So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The very words of God. You may be seated. So let's start unpacking uh, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. So let's start there. So we're going to get a sense of where this man is from. This is an epic story of the rise and fall of a mighty kingdom. That's what, this, that's what First and Second Samuel is, is the rise and fall of a mighty kingdom, especially if you move over into the kings, you get to see all of this, how this plays out. Um, a kingdom, not, a special, not, any other, not just any old kingdom, but a kingdom of priests, God's kingdom, people following God's law and trying to live that out. And it begins with this line, a certain man. Now this is in the Hebrew storytelling tradition. This is essentially once upon a time. Uh, this, is, this is a way of saying, all right, we're about to start this. Now there's a little bit of interesting pattern that we see like in the book of Ruth, where you have this, the first, you're supposed to have this sense of despair and despondency. You get through chapter one of the book of Ruth, and you're supposed to be just incredibly discouraged. Like, there's no hope here. These two women have no hope. There's no chance for them. Um, there's, there's nothing. The story's over. We should just kind of, you know, put a, put a check mark at the end that we read it and move along in our dis depression, in our depression. So, however, chapter two begins this way. Now, there was a man, and it begins to introduce us to Boaz. So, it's also a way of the Bible telling us God's about to work. God's about to do something through a person. And in this case, there's about to be something mighty done, just like with Boaz. Oh, you wouldn't be so depressed if you knew Boaz was about to show up. Then you'd be like, oh, sweet. This is a perfect setup for a guy like Boaz. Well, this is kind of the same setup. Now, um, here, here's the question, though. Then, then why isn't there a beginning to this book that's all discouraging and depressing before we meet Elkanah? So, so what do you think is going on here? Why, is it, why are they introducing him without giving us the despairing side of the story first? What do you think? Okay, the entire book of Judges is that story, right? You're exactly right. We are picking up the narrative at that same moment. Man, there's, who are these people? There's no hope. They're, just, they're confused. They're lost. They're, they're creating their own religions and their own gods. They're doing things their own way, their own priesthood, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's horrible. Now, where is he from? So he's from... Ramathame, 
uh, Zophim, or the two high points, Ramathame, was that what that was mean, and Zophim watchers. So probably you're talking about in the, in the area in, of the tribe of Ephraim, in the hill country, you've got these two hills that, that the town stretches across these two high points, and probably they even have like a couple of towers up there or something. So the two watchmen or the two towers on the two high points is what's being talked about here. Now this is important because it helps us know which Rama this is. There were at least six um, during this era, six cities, because Israel is a mountainous region, a very hilly. Again, you, we, we, as Texans, we have a hard time with this sometimes, but it's not a big region, but it is all up and down in the mountainous regions it is. There's a few valleys that move between the mountainous regions, but the mountainous regions are all over the place. And so a, hill, a hilltop city was very, very common, and the word Rama means essentially up high or exalted. So, of course, they all named their city Rama. Our city is up high and it's exalted. It's, we're up on the high point. You can find us. We're the city on the high point. The problem is there's everybody else named their city too. So they all had to come up with a, a new name. Probably, now we can throw, show the next map. Probably, we can't know for sure, but probably in this region. Okay? So it's hard for us to know exactly where some of these places were. Um, but probably in this region, in this hillside, in the hill, hilly region here. Um, which is, um, so again, you can see the whole, the whole map over here, and then we have over here just the specific area. So what we're talking about with Shiloh, Shiloh is, is, right now, we're just a little bit north of where Jerusalem would normally be, somewhere in here, and then up in here is going to be the Shiloh region as well, if I remember correctly, over there, but just south of Shechem, but there was a couple of Shechems too, so... Um, so here we have, we've got the, the, gap, the gap between them, which is an important piece of information, is about 14 miles. So it's about the distance from this side of Lake Palestine to here. It's about that distance. So it's about from, from, the, from Pine Cove camps, from the shores, to about here. So about 14 miles. You can do, you can do the math. It's, about, it's, not, it's, it's a little bit further than, say, from here to downtown, uh, Tyler. So, so that's the idea of about 14 miles is the gap. That's, that's when it says Elkanah took his family from his hometown to Shiloh. That's the walk that they're doing is about 14 miles. Now, you, again, you may think, well, that's, I mean, it's certainly further than I can walk, but it doesn't sound like that far of a distance, sort of. One, keep in mind, it's 14 miles as the crow flies, but this is the countryside. And when you go to Israel and you're in this region, you see these ancient goat paths, um, that are there. And on the hillsides going down the hill is this back and forth walk path. And in fact, on every hillside almost, there's these things. These are ancient paths. Um, some of them may have been carved largely by animals, but there were still people walking with those animals. There are shepherd's paths. As people followed up, they led their sheep up this trail and down the next trail. So marching, going 14 miles was actually a much further distance than just somebody flying from one place to the other. And there were no jeeps or cars. There were no private airplanes, none of that kind of, I mean, there's not even four-wheelers. There was nothing. You were walking it, um, and you might have a donkey with you if you were wealthy enough to have one. But keep in mind, not only is that the distance, it's also not safe. This is the end of the era of the judges. Man, you get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you're dead. You get caught in any time, you could be dead. It's not at all safe. This is not a safe region. It's not a safe place to travel. He's only a few miles, starting a few miles north of Jerusalem, 
which now we think of as the capital of Israel, in this time, it was a pagan city of unsafe people who saw themselves essentially as at war with you. You didn't want to get caught by them. You couldn't go stay in their city. As other people were creating their own religion, worshiping their own gods. This man is taking his two wives, at least four children, and I think when it says all her sons and daughters, four is not likely to be the correct number, um, but at minimum of four children, 14 miles each way to Shiloh. We are to understand in one sentence that this is a man who seeks the Lord. This is Elkanah who is faithful. Now he may not be faithful to much, but he's faithful to the one thing that he knows for sure. So that's Elkanah, the son of, now we get a little bit of who he, who he was from. We know where he was from now. Who is he from? Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth. That whole Zophim, in from the region of Zophim or the city of Zophim, that might have been named after his great-great-grandfather, Zuth. Um, but that's all supposition. We really can't know for sure. Just intriguing. But it describes him as an Ephrathite. Now this immediately creates... Um, controversy, which is probably exactly what you thought. When you read that, you were like, wait a minute, an Ephrathite? That makes me really suspicious. What's going on here? That should be our response. If we were a good Jewish audience, we would read this first, this first verse and go, this is weird. Something weird's going on. This feels strange. This isn't the way I would expect this to play out. Even in just one verse, we'd already have that sense, which by the way, is exactly what we're supposed to be feeling. We're supposed to be going into 1 Samuel 1 going, this seems weird. What, what is this about? What's God doing? So more details, if you want to, the in-between podcast, um, it's part of why it exists is to help us set up for Sunday morning and talk about it and, and let you guys be in on it if you want that, the, the behind-the-scenes scoop. But part of it also is we get to discuss and unpack some conversations that we don't get to have here in the sermon. And so if that kind of thing is interesting to you, we unpack this debate more um, in that. But I want you to hear this term Ephrathite does create a controversy. So either this is a family from the tribe of Ephraim. Well, that could create some issues because we're about to see Samuel serving in the tabernacle. And, and if you're going to be serving in the tabernacle, you're supposed to be a Levite. Now, there's lots of questions here, like how old was Samuel when the tabernacle was destroyed? Did he ever reach the minimum age of serving, or was he literally just uh, uh, Eli's servant versus the Lord's servant? And there's a whole bunch of questions here that we could dive into, and we'll probably talk about it even some more this week. But, um, but this would be exceptional. It would be a special thing if God is reaching into the tribe of Ephraim and saying, I'm going to select the leader of my people at the tabernacle from this tribe rather than from the Levites. That would be exceptional. That would be a special thing for God to do that. And again, you're supposed to have that thought, like, that's weird. That would be a weird way for God to do this. Or, and what I think is slightly more likely, is that you have a family of Levites, a history now of a family of Levites, who live in the region of Ephraim, rather than in their own tribal areas. Why? That's an interest, That's got to be an interesting story there. Why did this guy do that? Is it because... He found a place of God's blessings overflowing, and so he founded a little city and began that. Is it even questionable? Like, remember the guy who went up to the, na to the nation of Dan, or to the tribe of Dan, and started his own little religion as a Levite? Is that what's going on here? And we really don't know. In fact, that's part of the significance of this story that I'll get to in just a second. So what's he doing in the wrong tribe if he's from the tribe of Levi? Here's what we can guess at about this family. 
Let me give you their name meanings. Elkanah means God has purchased. That seems significant, probably a firstborn. Jeruham, one who finds mercy. Elihu, my God is he. Maybe my favorite, tohu, which means empty. Now you go, okay, how's that connect to God? Um, it's actually maybe most closely. The word here is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 for void. The earth was formless and void, was without shape. That's what this word is. So here you have a person whose name references the instant before God created. That's probably the significance there. And then Zuf. Now Zuf means honeycomb. And keep in mind, this is an era when there is no refined sugar. So really the only truly sweet thing, the extraordinarily sweet thing they can actually get is honey. So honey is a big deal in this culture, as it is in tribal culture still today. Um, if you've ever done one of those fasts, how many of you ever done the fast where you like, get, do, do no refined sugar for like a week or, or a month or something like that? You ever done that? And then and at the end of that week, you eat like an apple and you can't finish it because it's too sweet. But you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't. When we normally think of apples, it's like, yeah, they're kind of bitter, kind of sweet. But, but uh, our, we're so used to all this sugar. Well, this, it was a big deal to find honey. And this was a land of milk and honey. This was a, it was a land of opulence. Honey was considered a, a great sign of wealth. And so maybe that Zuf found a place where the honeycomb was really common and he set up a city there and decided this would be a great place to, to host people or whatever. But in the end, you've already noticed that I'm kind of saying maybe, maybe, maybe a lot. Because here's the deal. Alistair Begg points out what he thinks is the most important thing about this family. That the most important thing about this family is that they are nobodies. They're not cross-referenced. You know how we'll say, you know, we skim over names, we skim over lists like this when we're reading the Bible. I don't know about you, but I do. My natural tendency is like, oh, list of unpronounceable names, just slide right over the top of them, right? What's weird is in this case, it's almost like, yeah, that's okay here because they're nobody. So often we say, don't do that because if you'd cross-reference these names, you discover, oh, this person was an advisor here and they were important here and they were someone's dad and it was, it's all really significant. In this case, yeah, not so much. They're nobodies. Can we take a second and rest in that and be reminded? This epic story is going to start with a nobody family. It's a family that doesn't have a lot of cross-reference. What a wonderful vaccine against the modern mindset of our own importance, of our modern need to be known and to be first and to always be affirmed. You remember the craze in the 80s? Some of you old enough remember the craze in the 80s where everybody was trying to figure out their past lives? You guys remember this? Yes? No? Anybody? I'm not seeing a lot of head nods. I remember even as a young person thinking how silly this was. That I was going to find out, I was going to look back and find out. This, it's based on the assumption that we're reincarnated, which of course is horse manure, but the idea that we're reincarnated over and over again. So then who must I have been in past lives? And sometimes they even included animals. Like, well, I was so-and-so's donkey, and I was so-and-so's horse, and I was this eagle at this time. And, and what always struck me as funny about that, I mean, what a great con, right? What an easy con. You don't even have to work at it. You just tell everybody they were famous in former lives. And that's what all of them did. People would come out like, in my past lives, I was Cleopatra. I was like, really? Yeah, you and 10,000 other people say you were Cleopatra in your former... How many of us get to be Cleopatra in our former lives? Seems like there's only one of her. So it seems like that would be like, I was Joan of Arc when I was like, no, see, you probably weren't. If we even go with humans, you were probably peasant number one and peasant number nine and peasant number 749. <laughs> you include animals in there. It's like you were a virus and then you were a virus and then you were a virus and then you were a bacteria, but then you were a virus and then you were a virus. Like, 
What is that? Like, my life is so insignificant now that I've got to somehow add some significance by being connected to a famous person in the past? What makes our lives significant? Well, today we think it's going to be things like popularity or, or clicks or likes. There's such an, an, an obsession among young people today, for example, getting, uh, becoming, going viral. That, that everyone's read your article or clicked on your video or, you're, or they're looking at your picture and it's a picture of you and, and so you're so important that they're all responding to this picture of you. And it's, it's, that's, it, that's how it plays out now. Um, young people are quite literally killing themselves today in order to get this goal of going viral, of, of being approved of, of being affirmed through that. So... Imagine if someone in their past lives was, I was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, who was a nobody. That's exactly the truth. No one knows who he was, but he was faithful, and God gifted him with several children, and at least one of these was going to serve God all his life. Here's what struck me. Elkanah was not famous, but he served God. He was faithful to God all of his life. Amen. There is a life worth living. Verse 2, we also know that he had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other one, Penina, and I'm, we, everybody's going to pronounce that differently. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Um, so Hannah, the name here means grace, um, essentially means grace, and Penina means pearl, so both very sweet names. Um, but let's talk about this two-wife thing for a second. I feel like it's important that we at least reference it. Um, God defined and described his plan, his design and his definition for marriage early on, um, very early in his book. In Genesis chapter 2, we have this, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now the chapter before, in Genesis 1, it references the fact that God made human beings male and female. And Jesus, when he is answering a question about divorce, combines these two verses in a definition of marriage. It's in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 4. And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, for they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, we make a habit as human beings of redefining terms for God. God has a term, and he gives a definition. Um, you can include things like love. That God defines a term, he uses a term, creates a term, designs it, and he gives it a definition. Or, um, or maybe value, or treasure. Pick, pick any number of words, and we, God has given us a definition. And as humans, we redefine them all the time. God has a definition of marriage. It's his. This is the biblical definition of marriage. It is a covenant, a combining of two into one, a man and a woman. There's not another biblical definition for marriage. It's not out there. There's, this is the correct design. It is the way God designed it. This is his definition. If we want to come along and redefine it all we want, fine. That just makes us in opposition to God's definition. We do it. Um, it doesn't, it's not acceptable. It's not allowed. But, but that's, that just becomes the human definition for something. Sure, we're going to make stuff up. We make stuff up. All the religions are that. All of that kind of stuff is that. A lot of our religious behaviors are that. We just make stuff up. But God has a definition here, and this is his definition. It is his design. It is what he has ordained. It's what he has created. It's what he has defined. All the rest of it. That's, that, that's it. So anything outside of that that you want to call marriage, it's just not biblical. It's not God's design for marriage. 
Now, what's fascinating is that this plan and this purpose, the purpose is as a living parable of God's love for his people. He wants this lived out in front of people, that people will see how Ginger and I love each other and will say, I wonder if God loves me like that. I'd love to have a picture of that, that especially my children will wonder about that. I wonder if that's what God's love looks like. I might want to follow a God if his love for me looks something like their love for each other. That someone else might say that. That's the goal of marriage, is that, is that you would be a living, your marriage would be a living parable of God's love for his people. That's the, that's the purpose. Now, of course, we're humans, and so we're bad at it. We're not very good at this whole thing. And we're so bad at it that in a couple of very narrow, specific ways, God allows for his purpose to be lived out, even when his plan isn't. Divorce is the most famous of them. That he allows a way for people to be protected even in divorce because people are so butchering the purpose for marriage. We're not going to stop and talk about that any further, but it's very narrow and very specific. That being said, anytime we see in the Bible someone going against God's design and definition of marriage, it doesn't go well. It's not pretty. Remember that just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean God affirms it. It's just being described here. It's not being dictated. It's not being prescribed. The fact that Elkanah has two wives is not okay. And, he's going to, and, and the, the price is paid by everybody involved. Um, we can't know, but likely the story is Elkanah married Hannah. They loved each other and they got married. And then at some point, because all property passes down through children, that Elkanah became worried that he wasn't going to have any children, so he'd have no way to pass along his stuff. And so he gets a second wife to have offspring for him so that he can then have children to pass along his, uh, his wealth and his reputation and everything else. It may be that Elkanah has no idea this goes against God's plan. It may be that Elkanah has not heard the word of the Lord taught properly at any time in his life like this, and he may not know. But regardless of whether he does, every time we see this, it's bad. I'm going to jump ahead to 5 through 7 real quick for you to see this. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Now let's just stop there. In this marriage, you have one wife who is loved. Now, if you would go, well, it doesn't mean Penina isn't. I don't know. I think this verse almost does make it sound like this means Hannah is. He gave an extra portion to Hannah because he loved her. The implication would be he didn't give it to Penina because he didn't. So who wants to be Penina in this marriage? Hey, good news, you got children. You're married to a man who doesn't particularly care that much for you. But hey, he doesn't love you like he does the other wife. That sound like fun? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, and her rival, Penina, used to... Uh, uh, provoke her, provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So the other wife is living unable to bear children for her husband, so the second wife is now constantly harassing her over this. And keep in mind, God had promised his people, if you do things my way, you won't have barren wombs. And so anytime there was a woman with a barren womb, the, the assumption was you're not having children because of some kind of sin or shame in your life. This was not always the case, but, but that was the assumption often made. So, so now you've got, they're walking literally to the tabernacle 14 miles every year and back, and the whole time Penina is harassing her. Oh, you look at you without your kids. It must be lonely to walk without your kids. I can't think of all the mean things that she would probably say. How many of you, therefore, want to be Hannah in this marriage? Yeah, see? This is messed up. This is dysfunctional. This is an unhealthy, broken family. However, Elkanah took his entire family, as described above, faithful to the dangerous ship to Shiloh, probably to celebrate Passover every year. 
It's my opinion. By the way, when you, we just read the whole chapter. When you listened to that, did you get the sense that when they were at the tabernacle, it was a bustling place full of people? Did it sound crowded? To me, it sounds empty. Like, like maybe they're the only family there. Now, I don't know that. I don't have a reason to believe that, but it feels that way. It doesn't feel like, oh yeah, there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there to celebrate Passover. I don't get that sense at all. Instead, it may be that Elkanah is one of the few families faithful to do what God has told them to do, even in the midst of this. Here's a theme for us to consider. This is what this passage says to me. This is what I mean when I say we're looking for God's message to us together. Am I willing to be faithful with what I do know? Am I willing to be faithful with what I do know I need to be doing? But what if I'm a nobody? What if no one else is going to follow me? What if it's inconvenient? What if it's dangerous? What if no one else is doing it? What if it won't make me famous or liked or popular or approved of or affirmed? A theme of the Samuels, one of them is going to be this. Am I willing to be faithful with the small things, the things I do know to do? It's a theme of the whole Bible. If so, God is likely to bless you by magnifying that small obedience. If not, God is likely to seek someone else to replace you to accomplish these small things he has commanded. Elkanah knows to make a trek to the tabernacle once a year and to worship God and to try to love his family. You'll see that. He may be awful at it. His one little line that we get in here is so bad, it's laughable. Every wife in the room, when they hear that line, aren't I worth ten children to you? It's like, well done. Yeah, that was a great line. What, what, do you, what are you thinking? That should comfort her. Anyway, so he's going to mess that. But here's what he knows to do. I don't know. What, you can imagine Elkanah going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. But I know I'm supposed to go to the tabernacle every year. So I'm going to the tabernacle every year. Are we willing to be faithful and what little we know and what little we have. And what you'll see is that God is going to exalt him in some really cool ways. Just watch. So if you will, stand with me. And, and as we have this time of invitation, the assumption is God's word unpacked will not leave us empty. It won't be void. Is that God's word's working out in our lives. And if we're listening and we're humble enough to hear it, we'll see that. And so I don't know what it is that God has for you today. Is it along those lines? Is it along the lines of... Man, is there something that we need to be faithful to that we know we should be faithful to, but we're not? We still want this dare to be great opportunity in God's kingdom, but we don't want to be faithful in this small thing. That's not how that works. So this morning, I hope you'll come forward. If you've never put your faith in Christ, that's step one. That's the step one of what you know you need to do. If you've been a member of a church your whole life, if you've, quote, been a Christian your whole life, um, uh, which you haven't, that's not how that works. Um, if, you've, if you've been a member of a church or you've, whatever it is that you would say, oh, yeah. If you've never put your faith in Christ, you're not a follower of Christ. You don't know him. And, and you don't want to let, let that go. So if, you, if you've never put your faith in Christ, let today, let that be the first step of obedience. If you have, and, and some, some, I saw some post on social media, like, when should I um, recommit my life to Christ? And the response someone gave was, every morning when you get up. I agree with that. So whatever it is in your heart that you would go, I need to focus my attention. I need to follow him. Maybe you need to come up here and pray and confess and repent of your wisdom versus his wisdom. Um, and then finally, I would say, if you've been, if you've been through our Welcome Home team and you uh, know you want to be a part of our dysfunctional family and live out church here with us as a bunch of broken nobodies, then we would love to have you uh, join us as well. And you can uh, do that as well this morning. 
Whatever it is the Spirit leads, let me close on these words. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 18. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose the very words of God.